Welcome to Element Church. We are so glad that you are here today. Uh, my name is Andy Hazlett. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Element Church. Our lead pastor, uh, Pastor Jeff Manis, is on sabbatical this summer. And I just want to take a moment to encourage you to uh, be sure you take the time during the week to uh, pray for him and for his family. Uh, pray that this summer would be just an incredible time of rest and rejuvenation and a time of blessing on him and his family. Well, I have the privilege of sharing with you the message today out of our second minor prophet, the book of Joel. And there's a very good chance you have never heard a sermon preached from the book of Joel. Uh, I have never preached a sermon from the book of Joel, but it is an incredible book. Uh, we have some really cool cards that we developed for each of these prophets. So at the high top tables at the entrances for the auditorium, uh, and you can grab these on your way out, there's a card for the book of Joel, and there's a fun picture on the front of it. Uh, they're kind of like baseball cards, so be sure you grab one. We have the ones from last week as well from the book of Hosea. Uh, so on the front is a fun picture. On the back is some information about the book of Joel, the theme of the book, and that kind of stuff. So uh, hopefully that will just help us remember uh, some of the content we're going to look at this summer about the minor prophets. We've titled this series that we're going through this summer, Minor Prophets, Major Message. And uh, these 12 books are titled minor because they're, uh, it's not because they're less important, it, it's because they're shorter. And last week, uh, you heard one of the strange things about the book of Hosea. And that strange thing is that uh, prostitution is a theme of the book of Hosea. Now, Joel is a different book. It's a very short book with a very direct purpose that I think we'll see today in the message. And there's an interesting fact about the book of Joel as well. Joel singles out the sin of drunkenness as the only sin that he directly condemns. Now, it's not that this was the only sin in Israel that Israel was guilty of, but it's the only one that Joel directly points out. However, Within the sin of drunkenness, there is a great dilemma revealed in Joel's day as well as our day today. Alcohol, uh, alcohol promises great joy, but the abuse of it leads to despair. And this is true, really, for all pursuits of earthly pleasure. Drunkenness may or may not be your vice. I'll tell you one of my vices, Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Anybody with me? On that? Like when it comes to ice cream, Ben and Jerry, Ben and Jerry, they're my two favorite guys. I, I just love me some Ben and Jerry's. Up on the screen, I have a couple of pictures of my favorite flavors. The first one is everything but the unbelievable. Just absolutely changed your life. I read the description in the store, sold me on it, and it is so good. And then recently I discovered this new flavor. It's called salted caramel core. Oh my word, I don't know who invented salted caramel, but praise Jesus, they must be from above. So, so incredible. Go out and buy some today. Your life will be never the same. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that ice cream is a sin. Praise Jesus. But I am saying if my life becomes all about ice cream, like, like if, if I become consumed with Ben and Jerry's, if I look to Ben and Jerry's for joy, it can become an incredibly destructive sin, just like alcohol can become, uh, alcohol can lead to the abuse of alcohol and become the destructive sin of drunkenness. Like if my life becomes 
all about Ben and Jerry's, I promise you the scale is going to reflect it, and eventually I won't be able to see my shoes. Like if I eat, if I eat a whole pint of that every day, it's not going it's, it's to end very good for me. Here's, here's the thing. Just about any earthly pleasure can become sin because that earthly pleasure can become our focus instead of God. We can set aside God and pursue earthly pleasures instead. This is the condition of Judah, which was the southern kingdom of Israel in Joel's day. They were consumed with pursuing pleasure instead of God. They had replaced their pursuit of God with a pursuit of earthly pleasure instead. The sad reality, however, is that in rejecting God, they had rejected the only one that can give true joy. The pleasures of this world promise joy, but in fact lead to a destructive life. It kind of sounds like our culture today, does it not? And it's interesting, the message of Joel is absolutely relevant for us today, and it's incredibly beneficial for us today as well. The big idea for the message is this, the pleasures of this world steal your joy. The pleasures of this world steal your joy. Now, if you're in the room today and you're not a Christian, I'm so, so glad that you're here today. And I hope that what you will see in the message today is the compassion and the grace of God. Too often we make an assumption that the Old Testament describes a God only as a God that is mean and wants to punish evil. And while it is true that that God is just and God is good and, and God does punish evil out of his good nature because of his justice, in Joel we see the great compassion of God. Joel is a prophet that we know very little about, actually. Uh, We know that he was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, The northern kingdom, uh, often referred to as Israel, had been exiled at this point by the northern army of Assyria. And we know that Joel's prophecy came true. And that, by the way, is one of the greatest proofs for the accuracy, authority, and inspiration for the Bible. The message of false prophets did not make its way into the Bible. The true prophet's message is in the Bible because what they prophesied actually happened. The message of Joel is a message of warning. It's a warning to uh, Judah in Joel's day, and in turn, it's a warning to us as well. Joel uses the unique phrase, day of the Lord, throughout this short book. And by using this phrase, he's actually referring to three different periods of time. And uh, this also illustrates for us as well something that we see throughout all the different prophets in the Old Testament. So the first phrase, the day of the Lord, that, that Joel refers to is a plague of locusts that Judah had recently experienced. The second day of the Lord is the immediate future of Judah that unless they repent of their sin and turn from it, 
an army from the north will come down and destroy them. Now, this was a legitimate fear for Judah because they knew that this same army, the Assyrian army from the north, had just come down and destroyed and exiled the northern kingdom of Israel for their wickedness and their sin. The third day of the Lord refers to the second coming of Christ, which has still not yet happened and is yet to come. It's important to note that when we look at all the prophets... The prophets will prophesy of future events. And some of the future events that they will prophesy of is their day, their immediate future, the first coming of Christ, and the second coming of Christ as well. And this is one of the reasons why the the message of the prophets can be incredibly confusing. But with the book of Joel... We're going to focus mainly on the first two warnings that Joel gives by using this phrase, day of the Lord. We're going to focus on the plague of locusts that they had recently experienced. And we're going to look at the imminent threat of the Assyrian army from the north to destroy Judah. The main scripture we're going to look at is Joel chapter 2. Verses 12 through 27, we're not going to read all of it, but we're going to read a couple different parts of it. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. If you don't own a Bible, as always, uh, we would love to give you one. Stop by guest services, you can grab one. It will be up on the screen, though, for you today as well. We know that the pleasures of this world can steal our joy. So the big question we're going to ask and answer in the message today is this. What is God's pathway to joy? What is God's pathway to joy? Number one is this. The joy of God will require repentance. Joy of God will require repentance. Let's look at verses 12 through the first part of verse 13. It says this. That is why the Lord says, turn to me now while there is still time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Don't tear your clothing in your grief, but tear your hearts instead. This is literally a a call to war. The enemy is coming and God's going to allow them to come because the people of God have rejected him. The call of God is for them to genuinely repent. Let's jump down to verses 15 through 17. It says this, blow the ram's horn in Jerusalem. It's a call to war. Announce a time of fasting. Call the people together for a solemn meeting. Gather the people, the elders, the children, and even the babies. Call the bridegroom from his quarters and the bride from her private room. Let the priests who minister in the Lord's presence stand and weep before, uh, between the entry room to the temple and the altar. Let them pray, spare your people, Lord. Don't let your special possession become an object of mockery. Don't let them become a joke for unbelieving foreigners who say, has the God of Israel left them? We learned two lessons about repentance in Joel. The first one is this. Repentance must be genuine. Repentance must be genuine. See, a common practice of the people of Israel in Judah was to tear their clothing in a time of mourning. And God is saying to the people through the prophet Joel, I don't want you to just tear your clothing. I want you to actually turn from sin. I want you to change. I don't want your repentance to be a show, so to speak. I want it to be genuine. Now, it's not that repentance can't be an emotional experience. However, repentance is a decision. 
It's a change in alignment. It is more than sorrow. It means to change. And in fact, repentance is one of the reasons why believing in Jesus is a costly decision. Because to believe in Jesus requires that I believe in him as Lord and I give him the position of lordship in my life, thereby dethroning my selfishness in anything else that stands in the way. One of the best descriptions of genuine repentance, I believe, in all the Bible comes from the Apostle Paul in the New Testament letter that he wrote to the Thessalonian believers. He said this, And now the word of the Lord is ringing out to you, and now the word of the Lord is ringing out from you to people everywhere, even beyond Macedonia and Achaia. For wherever we go, we find people telling us about your faith in God. We don't need to tell them about it, for they keep talking about the wonderful welcome you gave us. And catch this, don't miss this. And how, they, and how you turned away from idols to serve the living and true God. There is a misconception, a huge misconception, that you can believe in Jesus without repenting of sin. And quite frankly, you'll never find that in the Scripture. You will not find it in the Scripture. Uh, Belief in Jesus and repentance of sin go hand in hand. Repentance may be subsequent to belief. But genuine belief in Jesus involves immediate repentance. It just does. Repentance must be genuine. The second thing about repentance is repentance is for everyone. It's for everyone. Notice that God calls everyone in Judah to repent. The priests, the children, the parents, the babies... Even the newlyweds who are normally exempt from going to to war for the first year of their, their marriage, even if it's their wedding day, everyone needs to repent. This is both an invitation and a standard. An invitation and a standard. It's an invitation because the Lord desires that everyone would be saved. And it's a standard because there's no other way to God except through belief in Jesus and repentance of sin. There's no other way. That's it. Now, how many of you, I'm going to shift gears for just a second. How many of you in the the room have seen the Trolls movie? It came out last year. If you have young children, maybe you've seen it. There's a picture up on the screen for you. It should be up there. There it is. This is the Trolls movie. Now, if you haven't seen this you're not missing that much. It's very weird. Uh, maybe your young children are missing something. I don't know if you haven't seen it. But uh, my four-year-old daughter, Madeline, loves the troll movie. Absolutely loves it. We went to it last year, and uh, we didn't buy the movie, but we did buy the CD with all the songs on it. And uh, we got a little boombox thing, for their, a little karaoke thing for uh, Christmas. And uh, she listens to that. She's listened to it probably a thousand times, I think. Absolutely loves it. Well, uh, let me show you a picture of my daughter. This is my daughter, Madeline. Uh, this is her, yeah, isn't she cute? Man, is she cute. Super cute. Here's the thing. In that picture, she looks adorable. And she is adorable. Absolutely adorable. And she looks sweet. And she is sweet about 50% of the time. The rest of the time, or other parts of the time, uh, if I'm honest, she, she can be kind of a butthead. Now, my wife says... My wife says, you shouldn't say that about her. And I say, 
There's no other adjective available that would describe how she can be. And if we're honest, you know, we, we can all be a, a butthead sometimes, right? We can all be like that sometimes. Well, uh, several months ago, Madeline had done something to get herself in trouble. I don't even remember what it was, but she did something bad and got in trouble. And, and as a father, I found myself in this position. I needed to decide on some discipline for her because uh, she needed to understand that what she did was wrong. And, and then more importantly, she needed, she needed to change her behavior, right? Wanted her to understand those two things and change her behavior. And so I, I, I think I started with a pretty mild punishment, a little spank on the butt, right? So I gave her a little spank, and here's what she did. Just kind of shrugged her shoulders, whatever. <laughs> and that's Maddie, like in a nutshell, right there. Like a spank does nothing for her most of the time. Anybody have a, a child like that? Like uh, maybe you had a child like that at some point where a spank did absolutely nothing. So you have to get more creative with the discipline maybe that you use. And so I, that, that was the position I was in. So I began to think creative. Okay, okay what's, what's next? Because she's not understanding what's wrong here. So I gave her a timeout. Go to your room, Maddie. Still, just kind of a shrug of the shoulder, whatever, absolutely no desire to change her behavior. Still didn't understand the gravity of the situation. So I thought, okay, I need to elevate, uh, elevate this punishment a little bit more. So I need to go after something that she loves. Enter the troll music. And so <laughs> I went and grabbed that CD and a trash can. I walked over to her room and I said, you are no longer allowed to listen to this CD the rest of the week. And Maddie, if you keep being naughty... I'm throwing this CD in the trash, and you'll never get to listen to it again. It's like in that moment, a switch flipped in her little brain, bawling her eyes out, you know? And, and it was awesome, you know? Not because, <laughs> oh, you know that moment as a parent where I broke them. I, yes, I got it. I found what would work in this moment, right? And so that whole next week was this ongoing conversation with me and my four-year-old about why, you know, what she did and why it was wrong and why she couldn't listen to troll music that week. And I stuck to my guns and she had to deal with it. And eventually she got it back. But, but she understood and she changed her behavior eventually. She, she understood. The point is that as a father, when I discipline my children, I want to see both remorse and change. When my children have done something wrong. The whole point of the punishment is not to cause pain. The point of it is that they would understand and respond in obedience. You see, God does not want our empty tears. God does not want our empty New Year's resolutions. God does not want for us to just come into an auditorium and raise our hands in, in worship. He wants for us most of all to believe in him and turn from sin. I'm not saying tears aren't okay. That, that's great, but they need to be accompanied by genuine repentance. We need to believe in Jesus as Lord and turn from sin. The pleasures of this world can steal our joy. So what's God's pathway to joy the first is that, joy, that, that the joy of God will require repentance. Then the second thing is this. The joy of God must be received. Must be received. Verses 13 through 14 says this. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. Catch this. He is eager to relent and not punish. Who knows? Perhaps he will give you a reprieve, sending you a blessing instead of a curse. Perhaps you will be able to offer grain and wine to the Lord your God as before. 
the locust plague that they had recently experienced was well-deserved because of their sin. And in God's grace, he sent the prophet Joel with a message of warning to repent of their sin and turn back to God. They're going to receive something. And God wants for them to receive grace. But the choice is theirs. The phrase that we've seen in the New Living Translation is, he is eager to relent and not punish. In some of the older English translations, it says that God repents. Not interesting, that God repents. Now, God does not repent in the sense that we repent. The concept is change. God does not need to repent of his sin as we do because God is holy and without sin. But God does, in a sense, change his mind. Now, before you scream heresy at me, let me explain. God is immutable. That's a theological word, immutable. And here's what it means. God's character does not change. It doesn't change. And a powerful lesson that we see in this verse and throughout the scripture is that God is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry. He delights in showing mercy. He's fully good in his nature. And God is going to send punishment upon Israel because of their sin. However, if they turn to God away from sin, he will instead extend grace. He will change his position for, uh, toward them. His good and compassionate nature has not changed. And side note here, when we look at the book of Nahum in July, we will see that God is still good even when he judges sin and evil. There's another place in the scripture that we see God in a sense, what at least looks like to us as a change. In the book of Jonah, we see this. Jonah is a minor prophet as well. And uh, Jonah is to go to the wicked and cruel city of Nineveh and proclaim to them their destruction. Jonah 4 verses 1 and 2 says this. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager. See, there it is again. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. God was planning to send destruction on the Ninevites. However, they repented of their sin and turned back to God. And because of their repentance and faith, God changed his position toward them and offered them forgiveness instead. Months ago, uh, a good friend of mine was uh, sentenced because of a crime that he had committed. And uh, this friend of mine, I grew up with him, and none of, none of you know him. Uh, he's not from here. He, in fact, lives on the other side of the country entirely. And uh, about a year ago, uh, this, this crime had been committed, and, and uh, eventually uh, some, of, uh, some of us friends found out about it. And, and when I found out about it, my heart just absolutely broke for him and his family. And he went through the whole trial process, and it was a, it was a, a bad ordeal. And uh, ended up pleading guilty to the crimes he had committed. And he, he was guilty, absolutely guilty. 
and, uh, and he knew it. Uh, everybody in the courtroom knew it. Uh, er, er, you know, everybody knew what was going on. He made some terrible decisions. He, he hurt a number of people in the process as well. But my heart just broke for my friend, you know, and it's different. You know, it's, it's different when it's someone that you know and care about, is it not? It's different. Like I read in the newspaper weekly about uh, people that commit different crimes and, and you, you know, whether, whether you mean to or not, when you read a story of someone that committed a crime, you don't know them at all, but you read the story and you begin to form opinions right away in your mind of what they might deserve, right? But it's, it's different when they're your friend. It's different when, uh, you, when, when I, I, I know his spouse and I know what she's going through and dealing with because of no fault of her own. And I know what his children are going to have to deal with and what they're going to miss out on because of no fault of their own, something that their father did that they had no, they had no hand in it at all. So it broke my heart and uh, pray, been praying for him through that process and everything. And uh, his sentencing had come and he stood before the judge and received the sentencing. And man, my heart just broke for him. Like when I heard w- about all of that and uh, I found myself, you know, I understood and I even agreed with the sentence that he received. But my heart broke for him because I, I knew, I, I know him. He's my friend. And I know his wife, and I know his children, and even to this day, it breaks my heart, and we continue to pray for them and, and uh, reach out and support them as, as best we possibly can. My heart breaks for them, but I'll tell you what, when, when my friend stood in that courtroom to be sentenced, he had absolutely no control over what the sentence would be. No control. He stood there in that moment And he had to receive whatever that judge was going to hand down to him as the sentence. And he did deserve it and and is now paying uh, the penalty for that. And here's what we need to see. Friends, we are guilty. We are guilty of sin and that sin deserves punishment. The wages of that sin is death and separation from God. Now, regardless of your opinion on our legal system, when it comes to God, he is a good and perfect judge that is full of compassion and mercy. And we can be the beneficiary of that compassion and mercy. Why? Because God in his loving kindness sent his perfect son, Jesus, to literally take upon himself the penalty that we actually deserve. So though you and I are guilty and deserve death, we can receive forgiveness of our sins. The point that we need to see here in Joel is the love and the compassion of God. He does not want to punish. He wants to extend grace. And the obvious question becomes, have you received forgiveness? Have you received forgiveness? The pleasures of this world can steal our joy. So what is God's pathway to joy? Well, the joy of God will require repentance. The joy of God must be received. And then number three is this. The joy of God, or the promise of God, is joy restored. Joel 2, 23 through 25 says this. Rejoice, you people of Jerusalem. Rejoice in the Lord your God. For the rain he sends demonstrates his faithfulness. Once more the autumn rains will come, as well as the rains of spring. 
the threshing floors will again be piled high with grain and the presses will overflow with new wine and olive oil. The Lord says, I will give you back what you lost to the swarming locusts, the hopping locusts, the stripping locusts, and the cutting locusts. It was I who sent the great army. It was I who great, sent this great destroying army against you. People of Judah had experienced this plague of locusts, and the locusts had destroyed their crops and left their lands in ruin. This was God's judgment upon them. But now we read of a promise of God for them. Because of their repentant hearts, God will restore their land and their crops will be restored. Theologian Charles Spurgeon says this about this verse. You cannot have back your time. But there is a strange and wonderful way in which God can give back to you the wasted blessings, the unripened fruits of years over which you mourned. It is a pity that they should have been locust eaten by your folly and negligence. But if they have been so, be not hopeless concerning them. The promise, in Joel's, the promise of God in Joel's day meant that God would restore the land to the people. They were broken, and that brokenness was their own fault. But God would bring blessing to them. God would restore their crops, even to the degree that they would be able to give back to God an offering that they haven't been able to give back to God. The principle that translates down to us today is that even though sin, our sin and the sin of others, has produced death in our lives, God will restore joy to those who turn back to him. God will bring peace into our lives. God will bring fulfillment and contentment. God will bring peace that passes understanding. The ultimate fulfillment of this restoration will be on the other side of eternity. And at that time, we will no longer have these broken bodies in this broken world that is marred by sin. God will restore joy in those who turn back to him. And this is true both on this side of eternity and on the next. A couple years ago, uh, I had really awesome privilege of officiating a uh, marriage ceremony for uh, two individuals that are just great people here in our church, uh, still involved here in the church, and uh, just awesome people. And uh, both of, for both of them, it was a second marriage. And for both of them, uh, their first marriages had ended uh, outside of their desire and outside of their control. Their first marriages had ended. And those first marriages ending had left behind a great deal of brokenness, a great deal of messiness, a great deal of heartache and despair. Fast forward a couple years, however long it was, and, and uh, they had eventually uh, met one another. Both of them at this time in their life uh, knew Jesus as their Savior and uh, were growing in their faith and, and uh, involved in church and so forth. And uh, they, they came together and, and uh, eventually they started dating and, and they got engaged and eventually were married. And it was, it was a really cool ceremony to be a part of, really cool. It, it, was a, it was a blessing for me to be a part of it, a huge blessing. 
And so uh, in that moment, you know, when they, when they got married, it was really cool because it, it, you could see the start of what God was restoring. It was really neat. That's been several years ago now. And uh, just a couple months ago, I was out in the lobby with, with uh, I was talking to the husband, and uh, all of them serve here in the church. Uh, both the husband and the wife serve in the church. They have teenagers that serve in the church as well. And uh, I was out there in the lobby talking with the husband, and I just kind of made an off-the-cuff remark to him and, and just made an observation. I said, man, you, you guys seem really happy. You just seem really happy. And his face just lit up. And he just shared with me just the, the joy uh, that was going on in their lives and, and, and where God has brought them as a family. You see, just a few years earlier, uh, there was a lot of brokenness that was there. A lot of brokenness that was there. And, and we talked about that. And then, and then we just talked about how, man, look now at what God has restored. Look now at what God has restored. He, hear me out. I'm not saying that when you turn to Jesus, your life's going to be all peaches and cream. Okay, I'm not saying that. Because life is difficult and there will still be hard times. But a truth that we cannot miss in this passage is that God does in fact restore. Our God is a God who gives peace to the heart of believers whether times are good or not. Our God will give fulfillment our God will give a joy that transcends our circumstances. The pleasures of this world that promise joy actually lead to destruction. But the joy that God produces is eternal. The joy that God produces will bleed into every area of your life, into every relationship that you have. I know that there are some here today within the sound of my voice. I know that, that you, you're, it's like you're on the edge of believing in Jesus and following Jesus. And, and maybe you want to, you have the desire to, but you're just not willing to give something up or someone up in order to follow him. And, and honestly, you're not sure if God's worth it. I promise you. You don't know what you're missing. You don't know what you're missing. You think you have joy. You think you do. But it's false. I'm telling you, the, God, the joy that God can give you transcends our circumstance. The joy that our God can give is eternal. It walks with us through difficulty. That God wants to walk with you and me through life on this side of eternity and on the next. I pray that we would experience the true joy that comes from God, that he alone can produce. The pathway to joy requires repentance. The joy of God must be received, and the promise of God is joy restored. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the promises that you give to us that you are eager to relent and not punish. Help us to see that today. Help us to see that even though, even though we mess things up, even though we're guilty, you offer us a forgiveness that we can receive that we do not deserve. 
and you are a God that restores joy. Lord, help us to see that today. And I pray that you would restore that within us. God, we love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.